part four of that. Um, parts one to three, we've kind of had a look at the panorama of the tabernacle, um, where we looked at um, kind of the overview, if you remember, of what, what, what was the tabernacle all about. Why did God give instructions to build the tabernacle? And remember that the grand design that we see before us is God's design. It's patterned from the heavenlies. This is not man's design, this is God's design. And we looked at all the different temples around the world and how majestic and massive they were. But this is God's design, this humble uh, meeting place. And that's what it was. It was to provide a place of worship. Remember, the, the Jews have come out of Egypt. They've been delivered out of there. For, you know, they've been in captivity 400 years. They come out of there and they want to worship God. And their first attempt, their man-made attempt, is an epic fail. That's Aaron and the golden calf. What they're trying to do there is take the, the anthropomorphic worship that goes on in Egypt where they, you know, made animals, give them uh, human qualities a lot in Egypt, and take what they've been surrounded by and then use that to form some way of worship of, of Yahweh, of God, of Jehovah. Now, that's no different than what the world does today. When we get away from what we talked about this morning, God's word, and we start to form and make and shape God and how he is to be worshipped in our terms. And that's all they were doing. And it's idolatry, whatever way you want to cut it. It's from a human heart. It's humanistic. It's a God formed in man's own mind. And God doesn't need man to form him. God formed man. That's the order of things. And this is his design, the tabernacle. And he provided it so they had a place of worship. It was also a place of witness, if you remember. A witness to the provision, the protection, the providence of God. This was going to be the place where the people could know that God was with them. So we looked at that, the panorama. And then we moved on to the pattern of the uh, tabernacle. And we looked at the measurements. We looked at the uh, materials. We saw the significance of the colors that were used. And again, we were reminded about the perimeter of the, of the tabernacle, if you remember, how that it was white linen. And William touched on the verse this morning that speaks directly into what's going on here. Remember William shared this morning, Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be scarred, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Talking about this great transaction that's going to take place through the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this perimeter of white was that uh, holiness, that holiness of God represented, that this is what kept people out. And of course, we noted that there was only one uh, way in to the tabernacle and that was through the gate and the gate had four colours if you remember white, purple, blue and scarlet correlating with the gospels so again, you know, correlating with Christ remember what Jesus said, John 10 verse 9 I am the door, by me if any man enter in he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture we talked about John 14 6 didn't we I am the way, the truth and the life no man comes unto the Father but by me. That is the tabernacle represented in a scripture verse in the New Testament. One door, one way in. Picture in the Lord Jesus Christ. This week, we're going to start to look at the pieces of the tabernacle. So we're going to have a look at the bits of furniture now. In the tabernacle, when it comes to the furniture, so we've dealt with the gate 
We've dealt with the perimeter. Now we're going to deal with the bits of furniture. Now there's six or seven, depending on how you cut it down, bits of furniture. There is the brazen altar, the brazen laver. Then you go into the holy place. There is the table of showbread. There is the great menorah, uh, the candlestick. There's the altar of incense. That gets us to five. Then you get into the Holy of Holies and you have the Ark of the Covenant and you have the mercy seat. Some people take them as one piece. I'm going to take them as, as two pieces. So we're going to see seven pieces of furniture over the next few weeks. So that's kind of got us up to where we are and what we're going to have a look at. So now we come, we've come in, right? We've come in from the outside and we've come to the first piece of furniture. So we've gone through the gate picture of Christ, the one who is the way, the door. We've come through the gate, we've come to Jesus, and we are presented here over the first item of furniture, which uh, KJV calls the brazen altar. You may have copper. We'll, we'll talk about that difference in a little minute. This is the first piece, and this is the biggest of all the items of furniture. So again, it, it tells you something about it. And this is something that you wouldn't miss. For the priests, and only the priests are in here operating now, so the Levites, when you come in as a priest, you couldn't miss this, you know, because you've got this uh, uh, brazen laver, which is just a big bowl filled with water, really, and then you've got the tent itself. So this is quite an imposing st- structure as you come into the, the, the tabernacle. So the thing is, we, it shouldn't be missed that these are laid out in order. And, and you know, it's not that this can go at the back, this has to go at the front. This is the first thing that is presented as you walk into this place where you're moving towards the presence of God. And it's this place of sacrifice uh, where atonement, it's the altar of sacrifice really, where atonement is to be made. So its position is, is, is in and of itself tells us something about the order of things as we approach God. So there's a place of sacrifice here. And of course, we're going to tie this into Calvary as we go on, but I don't want to get too far into it. So it's position first, right, right in front. It's elevation. It's also uh, important to look at. You'll see that there's a little, little ramp up to it, and uh, it's a raised, raised uh, platform there. So the English word altar isn't the same as the Hebrew word altar. So the English word uh, altar is from Latin, and it means high. Um, and it's interesting, actually, that the high places were places of pagan worship. But our English uh, version of altars comes from the Latin. But the English word isn't connected really too much with the Hebrew word for, for altar. The Hebrew word for altar is um, reflective of, or sorry, the English word for altar that they've translated is really more reflective of the burnt offering. Right, which burnt offering um, means um, uh, stairway or, or ladder, really, when you get into the, the, the root of this word. And I appreciate I'm doing a little bit of Hebrew. Um, because in the Hebrew mind, the burnt offering was a stairway to heaven. That's where we get this term, stairway to heaven. Sacrifices are lifted up to God. They understood the blood atonement and what that meant and how that, that was the place where they could uh, you know, reach God through these sacrifices. But the, the, the Hebrew word for altar, it, it's based on a word that means the sacrifice or slaughter. And that really conveys what this place is. Yes, it's a place that is, 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 um, has, is lifted up. There's an elevation to it, and that carries a little bit with offerings going up to God. But really and truly, in the, in the Hebrew, it's a place of slaughter. 
It's a place of sacrifice. The sacrifice was lifted up, placed upon. This is the lifting up. You can tie this in a little bit with the English word of, of high, but it's a lifting up to God. That's what the offering was. It's lifted up and it's placed upon, but primarily the association with this is a place of slaughter. It's a place of death. It's a place of death. And the sacrifice then is is put on these hot coals of fire and then the sacrifice is meant to rise up to God. So let's let's read from Exodus 27 and then we're going to have a look at the the, uh, altar and have a look at the sacrifices and the symbology and all that sort of stuff. But we'll read from uh, verse number 1, Exodus 27. And this is the, the account, this is the instructions on how to make the altar, the brazen altar. So... Exodus 27, verse number 1. The word of God reads this. And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood. If you're um, using New King James or another translation, you'll have acacia. Um, I'm going to tell you how we got acacia, because we got it from from shittim in the Hebrew. Um, We'll we'll talk about this, this translation of the word. But we'll talk about that in a bit. Five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar will be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And they shall make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same. And they shall overlay it with brass. And they shall make his pans to receive his ashes and the shovels, basins, flesh hooks, his fire pans and vessels thereof shall make of brass. And they shall make it for a grate of a network of brass. And upon the net shall they make four brazen rings and four corners thereof. These rings and the four corners were so that it could be transported. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be to the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. These were the um, long poles that would have went into the rings so they could move them, move it. Remember, this is a, 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 you know, Ikea has nothing on this. This is fat pack, build up and go. Verse 8. Or sorry, verse uh, 7. The staves shall be put into the rings. The staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Verse 8. Hollow with boards shall they make it. As it was hewed, showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. So these are instructions given by God to, to, to um, build this brazen altar. So, as we look at it, first things we're going to have a look at is the sacrifices of the altar. Now, I want to read you uh, um, some, some things that have been written by a commentator, but I, I pinched this um, to put in here because I think it's, it's, it helps us see a little bit. And I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but the commentary is, is about the book of Hebrews, and it's about the offerings and what this place meant to the Jewish mind. And so bear with me as I, I read this, but this is trying to put you into the mindset of a Jew at that time. Commentator said this, you wake up one morning knowing that you have to take a trip to the wilderness tabernacle to pay homage to your God. Other nations have their gods, but you have yours. Your God's name is Yahweh. And he was the one who through mighty displays of miraculous work and power freed you and your brothers from the backbreaking yoke of slavery when you were in Egypt. Why are you going to the tabernacle? You're going to make sacrifice as per the command of your God. You steadily make your way to the holy dwelling place of the Lord. Bring him with you 
the animal of your sacrifice. When you arrive at the court gate, you're met by the priest. The animal is taken, and with the priest's help, it's held. Its throat is slit. The animal bleeds and finally slumps to the ground. You stand there in silence as you watch death unfold before you. Your animal is now a carcass. It's cut up into separate bits that will be placed on the altar to be consumed by the flames of a roaring fire. This scene that has been described is what would happen. And I don't know about you as I just think about this process, because I don't think we think about these things often enough. Or I think about the person that has come to this place. They've brought their offering, and they know their offering in some way is going to pay or cover their sins over a little bit. And they bring the animal, and the animal is sacrificed before them, and then is cut up. And is put on and burnt. You look behind them and there's a queue. Death is in the air. Blood is on the ground. The animals that are queuing with the people are making noise. The smoke is burning, flesh burning. And this is constant. Constant. And of course, this place that you've come to is where the presence of God dwells. It's a holy place. But yet, at the entrance, at the very first, you're presented with this place of slaughter. Now, what point do you think? God is trying to get across to his people in the wilderness. When they sit there and they stand and they watch another die. That has had nothing to do with the actions that their offer has taken part in. And this is is constant. I mean this is not just one animal slaughtered and then that will do for a month. This altar and its fires burn continuously. Because offering needed to be made continuously. What point do you think God is trying to get across to his people? I want to put it to you. He is trying to show them the seriousness and the somberness of sin before holy God. This is not a jolly Oh, let's go to the uh, tabernacle. Won't that be a lovely day out? No, no, no. As they come for their camps or surrounded, you know, there's a lot of people here. They make the journey down. This is a place of somberness. People aren't dancing around here because they know how serious their sin is. That's the impression that's given. They were being made aware of the great cost and the sacrifice needed to have an ongoing relationship with a holy God. 
He called his people to be holy. We talked about that this morning. Be ye holy as I am holy. And understanding that they can't be that. And that actually before God they are sinners. And that that sin needs paid for and there's nothing they can do of themselves. So they bring the sacrifice of another. This is the seriousness of sin. And this is one of the problems about the church today. That when we think about Jesus Christ's sacrifice, that we can get tied up in the, and I, I, I want to say this reverently the right way, the romance of it. We can't forget the brutality of it. It was a slaughter of the Son of God because of our sin. And that should be a somber thought. I mean, the Jews knew it. They knew God was holy. And they weren't. Because they witnessed this all the time. The people around seen the fire of sacrifice all the time. This constant reminder of who they were and who God was. Not to take it lightly. They knew that sin required a blood sacrifice. Leviticus 17 verse 11 reads this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I love that. William's talking about science this morning. (laughs) How long did it take the great thinkers of humanity to realize? You take the blood out, you're going to die. God knew it. The Jews knew it. It says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement for the souls. This blood represents life, and that's the picture that's being shown. Sin has to be paid for, and it's serious. Hebrews 9, verse 22. Again, remember these two books are parallel. Hebrews 9, 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no remission of sins. This is the cost. So the Jew knew this because they lived this out day and daily. This is why a Jew who was witness to that If we went back in time and shared with them Hebrews and the good news of the gospel and they get saved and and, and, and turned to God in that aspect, they'd be blown away by such a great salvation in Christ. Once for all, you only mean it's done. It's never finished. Sin needs paid for and we're sinful people and God's holy. And the writer of Hebrews comes in and says, no, 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 it's paid for. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. What a salvation. What a salvation. See, this brazen altar, the fires burned continuously. And it was the reminder then of what it cost to be in a right relationship with God. And the position wouldn't be lost on any of those Jews. That if you want to come into God's presence, sin needs to be dealt with. End of. 
and you can't fix it. This is what this picture is. Now, when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, again, I am the way. Calvary's cross was an eternal cry of the great I am who said, I am the way. Nobody comes to God but by me. Let me paraphrase it. You can't come to the Father except through me. It's my blood that allows you access. So, of course, when we think about the sacrifices at the altar, we can't help but think about Calvary's cross because Calvary's cross, whether you like it or not, whether you want to love the idea or not, was an altar where God the Son sacrificed himself. He was not forced upon there. He chose to go on there. He laid down his life. This is the parallel. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, William said it this morning, that you lay your bodies down, a living sacrifice. That's what Jesus was. Calvary was an altar where our sin was paid for. Sacrifices of the altar were a reminder to the people that sin demanded punishment from holy God. God couldn't turn his eye away. If he did that, he'd be altogether unholy. So we think about the sacrifices of the altar. We I want to move and think a little bit about the structure of the altar. We get into verse number one of 27, chapter 27 again. Just thinking a bit, a little bit about what's going on. It says, and they shall make an altar of shittim wood. So again, um, King James has a, a shittim, which causes, causes chuckles in my house whenever the kids hear that. But there you go. Um, but modern translations have it, have it as acacia. And so the word shittim is not a translation, it's a transliteration. It's a Hebrew word spelled with English letter equivalents. And, and the thing was, they didn't have a clue what shittim was. They didn't know. They didn't know. That's what I love about the King James, you're going right back. So they, they didn't know. And this is, this is I, you know, some people like this stuff, others won't even be bothered, but I, I love this stuff. But this is how they found out what uh, Shittim wood was, because they didn't know. Because again, it's a Hebrew word, and they've just put English letters in there and, and got Shittim. So they didn't know what it was. So they're struggling to find out what it is, and then uh, they worked out eventually that it was Acacia. And this is how they worked out it was Acacia. Turn to Numbers chapter uh, 33. Because Hebrew is a very descriptive language. The names are descriptive. The places are descriptive. Bethlehem, for example. House of Lehem. Bread. Exactly. Um, you know, loads of, loads of different, very pictorial language, symbolic, and, and shown a lot. But in Numbers 33 and verse 47, we'll read from verse 47 to verse 49, and, and I appreciate your patience with my Hebrew pronunciations. But Hebrews, or Hebrews, Numbers 33, verse 47 reads this. And they removed from Almon, Dibalathim, and pitched in the mountains of Ebrim, 
before Nebo. And they departed from the mountains of Ebram and pitched in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho. And they pitched by Jordan from Beth Jemazon even until Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. The name Abel Shittim, you may have something different if you're a more modern translation. Um, that's the name of the place. This is a geographical place. So they're able to go to that place and uh, look at it because it's a position on the map. These are all historical places. You know, this is not some made up uh, town or place. And they worked out that the name Abel means shadow of the Shittim tree. Abel Shittim in the shadow or the meadow of the Shittim tree. So they went to the place and when they went to the place, they found that the, um, the little village that it was was surrounded and circled by these trees. And then they went and looked at the trees and found that they were acacia trees. And from that, they deduced that Shittim is acacia. So the Bible has helped us uh, work out what, where Shittim come from. Before that, they didn't have a clue. They were guessing. So they went to the place and said in the meadow of the Shittim tree, they found that it wasn't uh, Shittim trees because they didn't know what that was, but it was acacia in the shadow of the meadow of the acacia trees. So then they were able to deduce that Shittim in the Hebrew is what we call acacia. And that's what these things were, were built of. Now, so now we've worked out that it's acacia wood that's underneath here. They're overlaid, and we'll talk about the overlay, but the, the, the structure, the fabric of it is acacia. Now, is there anything for us to see in acacia wood? And the answer is yes. When you look at acacia, it has some very interesting properties that I think are pictorial. Again, you know, I'm not going to um, um, be dogmatic in this, but I think it really points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, acacia is a very, very tough wood in terms of its resistance, sorry, to those that would corrupt it outside influences such as insects, woodworm, all that sort of stuff. The Middle Eastern equivalent used to destroy trees. But the acacia, for whatever reason, is kind of impervious to this. So it doesn't suffer from rot internally in the same way that other uh, wood does. So again, it's chosen for those properties, and, but it's by God. So yes, it's wood, and we look at it from a practical sense, that it makes sense. You want something that has somewhat of an indestructible nature in terms of the elements and the insects and that around. But again, when we're talking about the tabernacle and the design of God, I want you to see that these are shadows and pictures and types all the time, that this picture of acacia being used isn't, isn't lost in the fact that it has some form of special durability internally. And if that doesn't point you to Jesus, who was impeccable in his nature, what does that mean? He was incorruptible in the inside. Again, it's just a shadow. It's just a type. It's just a picture of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ meshed with his deity. We call this the theological terms, the hypostatic union. It means 100% God, 100% man. Never let anybody tell you that when Christ became a man, he emptied himself of his deity. No, 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 no. He was always God. Now, he chose to withhold some of those attributes, and other times he didn't. But he never lost his deity, never once. His humanity was there, 100% man, but also 100% God, meshed together. Mind-blowing? It should be. It should be. 
Of course, we have Christ. He's sinless. That's the impeccable nature of Christ. Hebrews tells us, 4.15, We've not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So again, Cassia, I think, points to this. It's not a random choice. What else about a Cassia? If it was just that, you may think, well, pastor, you're maybe pulling a little bit. And, uh, you know, a little bit of conjecture there. But it's not just that. Uh, Cassia was lo- known for its long, sharp thorns. And again, we can think of the crown of thorns. But here's the interesting thing that I love. Is the acacia tree would only produce its sap when it was pierced at night. So if you wanted to get the sap from this tree, however it works in the natural world, that you had to pierce it at night. And when you pierced it at night, the sap would run, and the sap was used for medicinal purposes in the Middle East. Um, so again, we think about the cross. You know, Christ is pierced. Darkness is over the land. Again, it's, it's pictorial. It's absolutely pictorial. Um, and of course, when we think about Christ's sap, if you like his blood, it's this eternal life, spiritual health that comes from it. Uh, what else do we read? And, and you can see in the measurements there that it's five cubits long. Um, so, quick test. Can you remember what five was a picture of numbers? Remember I said er, numbers are important in Scripture, but not every number is important. Do you remember what number five was? Come on. What did it picture? Number five. Come on. Come on. We're not leaving until you get it right. Right. This is sweet. <laughs> sweet for it gets it right. Let's think about it. What did I tell you? Uh, David had five stones. Why five? Why not three? Why not two? Why not one? Hmm? Grace? <laughs> it's good, brothers. It's grace. Five is a number of grace in Scripture. Um, so you'll see that, the five st- stones, the oil that we'll look at when we get here in Leviticus, composed of five parts. Uh, the people, when they came out of, of Egypt, came in rows of five. Uh, Genesis 15, turn there. I'll show you another five. Genesis 15, verse 9. We'll do a little bit of maths, shall we? See if you can count as I read. So here's the ratification of God's covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 15, verse 9. So I'm going to read, and I want you to count the animals, okay? You ready? <laughs> Praise the winner. You get a badge. I'll give you a badge. We sticker. Genesis 15, verse 9. And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. How many animals? Five. Why? Random? No. It's the number of grace. It's picturing grace. Picturing grace. And I don't know about you, but this altar is a picture of God's grace. Because it's only by his mercy and his grace that he'll allow sinful man even the opportunity of another's blood to pay for their sin. God's not obligated for that. That's his grace. John 3.16 is grace. 
Christ coming to die for our sins. It's grace. So you've got the number five mentioned. The number five is mentioned a lot in the tabernacle. And again, I don't think it's an accident. God is a God of order. Uh, what else does it tell us back in Exodus 27, verse number one? So it's uh, four square. The altar shall be four square. Do you remember what number four was? Go. Yeah, go creation. Creation. Creation, the fourth commandment is the one that refers to the earth. Four seasons. Four points in the compass, north, south, east, west. And it showed you and pointed you to the fact that it points to this uh, all creation aspect. There's four colors at the door. As you go into the tabernacle, the four gospels. Why is there four gospels? Why is there four colors? It's picturing Jesus and the, the offer, I am the door, I am the way. If any man, whosoever, it's open to all. Grace available for all. So you've got five in there, and we're going to see it repeated. You've got four in there, we're going to see it repeated. What else have you got in verse number one, Exodus 27? Five cubits long, five cubits broad. And the height thereof shall be three cubits. Now three is my favorite number. Beautiful number. Trinity. 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three's everywhere. Three's everywhere. In the universe, three's everywhere. Time, space, matter. Time itself is three tenses. Past, present, future. Space is one concept, but three. Length, height, breadth. Matter, solid, liquid, gas. Three's everywhere. Three's everywhere. Body, soul, and spirit. And that's not an accident. It's not an accident. You get to Calvary. The number three is everywhere. Anybody can think of anything in Calvary's cross, that, that time where Christ is on the cross, where there's three involved? Right, so three, three. There's three. Where else? What R? Was he lifted up upon the cross? Third R? Three were crucified with him. The darkness lasted for three hours. He rose again on what day? Do you think that's an accident? No. Absolutely not. Tabernacle. It's in three parts. Three is everywhere in God's design and God's print. You see it in the very universe that we exist in. So then also, so we've looked at it, we've got five in there, we've got four square. Then there's these little things here, horns. One, two, three, four. Four horns. Again, four, we're, we're thinking about creation, universality. You've got four horns. Does anybody know what horns represent in Old Testament scripture? Authority, power. Yeah, turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk. How many churches did they have? Sent people to the book of Habakkuk. <laughs> Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse number 4. 
Habakkuk 3 and verse 4. And his brightness was at the, as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand and there was a hiding of his power. The Hebrew word for horn means strength. Strength. You get into Revelation and you have the symbology resurfacing. Revelation 17, turn there. Excuse me. This word in the Greek means pinnacle, point, or power. Revelation 17, 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. So the horns are pictorial in scripture of power. There's four of them. We're thinking about Calvary. We're thinking about this. Offering. Remember, this is picturing Calvary. This is picturing the ultimate offering. Remember, the tabernacle had a, an immediate purpose and it had a future purpose. And the future purpose was pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Calvary's cross, who did this all. So if we're thinking about Calvary, we're thinking about this place of soft slaughter, this place, this uh, altar of offering. And then we think of New Testament scripture and New Testament truth. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Power of God unto salvation. Who's the offer open to? All. Oh. So there's symbology in the, these horns. This could have just been flat. But the Jews knew that this symbolized, these horns symbolized power. What else? So we've looked at the acacia, we've looked at the measurements, and we want to think about the fact that it's overlaid with brass or, or copper. Now there's debate over whether this is brass or copper, um, and you know, the, the debate rages. We're going to go with brass, because that's what the KJV has. doesn't really matter whether it's brass or copper, because the words in the Hebrew is the same. So it, it pictures what it pictures, it doesn't really matter. They, they're similar bronze and brass um, sorry bronze um, and brass are the two what is debated over we're going with brass because that's what the, the KJV has but again it doesn't change the picture because the word in Hebrew is the same where do we find brass in scripture again Numbers 21 verse 9 and Moses made a serpent of brass put it upon a pole and it came to pass that if the serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass he lived so again there's a judgment association with it. Um, Zedekiah, King Zedekiah, 2 Kings 25. Um, I'll not go there for the sake of time, but you can look in your own time. You'll see the repetition, if you're using KJV brass, use another translation, bronze, you see the repetition of bronze as that king is judged and taken into captivity. And we don't have time to look at. You go into Revelation chapter number 1, verse 4. 15, that revelation, revelation, the word revelation, we know this, is the Greek word apocalypto. It means the revealing, unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, his feet like fine brass, they burned as a furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters. There's a picture of God's judgment and his authority to judge. When you look at the utensils of the, of the uh, tabernacle, you find the same acacia and, and brass used in them. So, let's tie all this together. 
Let's get on a little bit because time is away with us. The symbology of the altar. You know, what does this all picture to us? And again, we've been drawing this out as we've gone along. This is the place of justification. Again, this is a theological term. But this is what the altar is picturing. Justification doesn't mean that we've been made righteous. Justification means we've been declared righteous. And so we use the little thing, just as if I'd never sinned. So there's a judicial sense to that. You've been justified. And that's the first part of the process of coming to God. You cannot come to God unless he has justified you. He's declared you righteous. And the only way he can do that is not through the blood of bulls and goats, not through the uh, offering of your own works and deeds and actions, but through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Sacrifice, the only sinless, spotless sacrifice for all sin. And then when that takes place and we enter into this relationship with God based upon the blood of Christ, we are declared righteous, judicially. The judge says, another has paid for your sin. You're now in a right stand and everything has been wiped. God is chosen to remember your sin no more when you enter into this place. Romans 4, verse 24 and 25 tell us this. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So this is us getting into a right relationship with God. And that's what's going on in the tabernacle except for the Jew that comes and offers the sacrifices and offers the blood of bulls and goats and follows the the rituals and the religion, the things that God has prescribed, they knew that that standing with God wasn't fixed and final and they had to keep going back and repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating. The fires burned and didn't stop. But on the altar of Calvary, on the cross, where Jesus cried, it is finished. Tetelestia in the Greek. You you should look at that term. It's outstanding. Outstanding. That prisoners, when they were imprisoned, when they had served their sentence, when when the just judicial punishment had been completed, that the jailer would give them a little... Uh, kind of certificate thing that was stuck on the jail cell that they could take with them and would write on it Telestia, paid in full. So that when they went out into society and somebody said, look there's the criminal they could raise this ticket which said paid in full. For the believer if you sit here tonight Saved by grace. That you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ and asked him to be your saviour. Knowing you can't save yourself. That you can go to this altar and there's nothing you can do to get yourself in a right standing with God for eternity. And you call out to Christ the only sacrifice. Then you get the tetelestia. You're justified. You're declared righteous. And the enemy will come in and he'll accuse you And say, oh, you're not even a Christian. All the things that you've done, this is what you do. 
Terelestiae. Paid in full. I'm right with God. I'm justified. This is the place of the altar of Calvary in our lives. This is the altar that was put in the desert all those years ago. That actually there was no way to God but by this. That this is a process. This is the way that we come to God. We have to come by the gate. That's why Jesus stood and said, I'm the door. I'm the way. He wasn't speaking out of a vacuum. He was speaking out of the roots of Judaism that he was born into. These pictures that God had designed and put in the desert all those years ago where he had delivered his people out of the world and then given them away to worship. We come through the gate and we come to the place of sacrifice, a place of slaughter where sacrifice has to be made. The difference between us and the Jew is that once we come this way, we keep on walking. We keep on walking. That we never have to go back to that altar again and offer up anything else. I want you to get that tonight. That it's done. For the Jew, it was never done. Never done. The fire of sacrifice burned and it burned and it burned. The animals were slaughtered and the blood was shed and it just rolled over and rolled over and rolled over. And the Jew himself could come to the door but no further because that was the place of the priests. But under the new covenant, you have been declared righteous before God. You are a priest of God. Not after the Levitical order, but after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Christ. You are a priest and you can walk in and you never have to go back to this. It's behind you. Your sin has been dealt with once for all for an eternity. Now we walk in a different relationship. We don't go and offer Christ again. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. If you fall away, there is no more sacrifice. It's done. But what happens with us is we now have to deal with our fellowship with God. Your relationship with God is secured here. Justified. That's judicial. And it's done. And we never go back there. Now we get humbled by it, but I'm talking about in a, in a legal sense. But we have to deal with our fellowship with God. This is our sanctification, and that's what the bronze or brass basin is about. Now we're going to look at that next time, and we're going to leave it for tonight. But what I want you to get is, this is your great salvation. That when Jesus says, I am the way... When you come into that way, you're in forever. You can't go back and sacrifice him afresh. It's done. This is eternal security. And this is important. Because there are people today that will teach that actually you need to go back out and then come in and go through it all again. And bring your own offering keep you justified before God folks that's a lie from the pit of hell and that's an offense against the cross of Calvary 
and what the Lord Jesus did. He paid for our sin once for all, forever. For the believer, we can cut this out and focus on what's left in the other items of furniture, which we'll do, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray.